You know, there are, I've thought a lot about this in the sort of seven years since I've been involved with, with uh, these wonderful people. There are many kinds of intelligence. You wouldn't know it living in our society because we pretend that intelligence is a sort of neutral thing which is defined and we know what the best is and then it's sort of, there's not quite the best and so on. And uh, a very kind of utilitarian, meritocratic view of how societies work. Um, and there's no question that if you look at our history, you'll see that with time, definitions of intelligence change. I mean, there was a time when in order to be really intelligent, you had to be able to ride a horse really well and wear armor and carry a heavy sword. And that was a sign of some sort of intelligence. Well, that doesn't really work anymore, right? So it seems that definitions of intelligence change. And what's dominant at the moment in the West is an idea of a kind of linear, uh, logic, rational, specialist silos, speed, the faster that you can do things and think of things and say things, the more impressive you are, the more interesting and powerful you can become. And there's no question that this approach towards intelligence has brought us incredible breakthroughs and changes. And yet at the same time, we look around at the world and we see that it's precisely this same intelligence that, for example, looks at an entire northern world of melting icebergs and can't figure out what it means. Or if they can figure out what it means, can't figure out what to do about it. Which any normal citizen would say isn't very intelligent. And so things appear to be a little more complicated. We're, we're living in a sort of religion of meritocracy. But, you know, there's a, there was a wonderful, the first great journalist in Alberta was a guy called Bob Edwards who drank as much as he wrote and was very, very funny. And I don't know if he's at all known in British Columbia, but he's a real Calgary character. And one of the things he said to a graduating class was, before congratulating yourself, when you come out on top, bear in mind that the froth of a glass of beer does the same. <laughs> and to put this in slightly more vulgar uh, language, a Renaissance prime minister of France, or chancelier de France, said, Plus haut monte le singe, mieux on voit son cul. So there's some French in the audience, I see. You know, the higher the monkey climbs, the better you see his ass. And you will notice that if you listen to people as they rise in power, they tend to say less and less intelligent things because they're advised that it's dangerous to say intelligent things. But anyway, I'm slightly off topic, but only marginally. Um, what is interesting is that this meritocratic approach towards intelligence is actually tied historically to anti-democratic traditions of corporatism. It's tied to a sort of pyramidal view of society in which some people are on top. And as you go down, people are isolated in various ways, class, power, whatever. They're isolated. I think that if you were to stand back and ask yourself, well, what are the, well, you know, so if that's the case and there are many forms of intelligence, what, what, what would be the thing that links intelligence together? And I'd say that the most interesting forms of intelligence are capable of integrating ideas of tolerance and empathy, imagining the other. It's not an accident that when you look at philosophy, philosophy through thousands of years in the West, Aboriginal philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, Chinese philosophy, it always comes back to one question, the capacity to imagine the other. 
If you can't imagine the other, empathy, if you can't imagine yourself in a community with the other, the person you don't know, or the person who's different from you, then in effect, you're not functioning as a civilized human being. You're not functioning in an intelligent way. Joseph Conrad said, tolerance is an extremely difficult virtue, more difficult than heroism, more difficult than compassion. Surprising, more difficult than compassion. Why? Because it's tolerance that makes compassion possible. So where do you get tolerance? Where does tolerance come from? Well, I think that it comes from understanding the possibility or the necessity or the reality of a non-exclusive idea of community, an idea of community, of belonging, and belonging to something in which people are different inside the community. That a community is not everybody's the same and they belong to a community and because they're uh, the same education, the same language, the same color, whatever. That actually what makes a community interesting is its capacity for tolerance, which is to say its capacity to be a community of differences uh, within it. And I think that in this country and in this province in particular, we're particularly well suited to understanding that kind of thing because we have such a strong Aboriginal tradition where the whole idea of the circle is alive. And I think that, and I've said this a lot recently, I think that we've all ingested, digested this idea over the hundreds of years that Europeans and others have come to this country. The idea that actually the linear, the meritocratic, it's fine. But actually what's really interesting is the idea of living in a circle, a circle into which people are invited. And once they're in, well, you kind of try to figure out how we're all going to live together. That's a description of our immigration citizenship policies at its best. It's a description of how this country works at its best. And you can tell from the way I'm talking, it sounds like plan. It sounds like the ideas of this organization. It sounds like the ideas about which represent the people who made the creation of this organization necessary. You've been involved, a lot of you in this, this church for 20 years, and you thought about it, some of you, for more than 20 years. I became involved seven years ago, and when I found out about it, I immediately felt that this was a movement that I belonged in, that it was an organization which I instinctively understood before it had been explained to me, I only had to hear about three sentences to know that they were absolutely on the right track. Uh, now I understand it better. Now I can put different kinds of language to it. Al and I are often sitting down and saying, well, how would we talk about this kind of thing? And that's one of my kind of specialties is coming up with language. And, and I think this idea of the circle really makes sense of what it is that so many of you have been doing and trying to do. When you talk about friendship and belonging, you're talking about a concept which is not a sort of post-industrial idea of civilization. You're talking about another way in which people can be together and belong together. And I understood this, and you, you were told, because I had a brother who died age 19 who had some handicaps and who was, I suppose, really the most important person in my life. I think I could say that, and I don't think my mother would be upset to hear me saying that. And, and I think that all of us sensed in our family the way all of you sense in families where there are people who appear to have handicaps, sense that there is another way of understanding how communities can live together. And it isn't the way which is rewarded and admired and pushed forward 
in our societies. It is a different approach. It's a different understanding of how human beings fit together. And, and as many of you who are you know, over 50 or 60 here will know, Canada was a very different place 40 years ago. I mean, before organizations like PLAN, this is one of the worst countries in the world for people who had handicaps. It had no services. It had the wrong attitudes. And I remember very clearly and the, 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 the description of the lady who's buried uh, outside this church sounds like a description of my mother, 91, still alive, who had to fight on a virtually daily basis to make people understand the role which people with handicaps have the right to play in our society. But now Canada is a much better place, and it's a much better place in part because of an organization like PLAN in part because organizations like PLAN have created systems which work for people with handicaps and for families which have people in them with handicaps. But it's not, that sounds sort of utilitarian. Because in fact, that whole idea to me has increasingly grown, as I followed it over the last seven years, has increasingly grown into an idea of citizenship. In a sense, the ideas that you represent are a protection against the stupidity of the speed version of what's smart that leads to the melting icebergs. In essence, you're the counterbalance to that naivete that as long as you keep rushing ahead and making breakthroughs, that everything is going to work better uh, for the planet and for the people on the planet. You're an antidote to the fallacy of speed. And, and, and I say this with great confidence because there is absolutely no example in the history of the world of speed being described as a characteristic of intelligence. Except perhaps in a cavalry charge, but that's usually not considered a sign of intelligence. So, the curious thing, and I think this is where we still are and where we're still struggling with languages, we, we, as a society, we still talk about the needs of people with disabilities. Those of us who think we don't have disabilities need to spend more time thinking about the contributions of those who apparently do, the contributions that they can make and already making but could make more as citizens. It should help us to understand about a different, understand a different idea of process. And what I mean by that is that to the extent that we have a disability, we're obliged to be much more conscious. The harder it is to get through a day, the more we have to be conscious about what it takes to get through the day. And the people who think that they don't have disabilities can get through the day half asleep. You know? But the people who have to be conscious in order to get through the day have an enormous strength, the ability to understand, let's say, to understand the metaphor of the melting icebergs. That every minute of every day involves work. And what that means is that every one of us has an enormous amount to gain if those people, if those citizens who appear to have disabilities are able to exercise their citizenship in the fullest way. And I say that 
it should be self-evident. It's not a charity. It's not a gift from the others. They have the right to the full exercise of that citizenship for the simple reason that they're citizens. And I think that the ideas of plan, the ideas of, of ties, uh, the, this idea of the circle of friends, uh, this is central to this other approach. And when one thinks about it, you could make the mistake of thinking, well, isn't it wonderful that all these people have come around the person in need? Whereas in fact, you could look at it exactly the other way, that it's thanks to the person in need that the others have the privilege of being convened into a circle of friends, convened by consciousness into a circle which values difference within human relationships. So I think that the isolation, the loneliness, which we struggle against in our society, which affects, I think, everybody, comes in large part from the way in which we've defined our society and the way in which we've defined what responsibility is in the society. Responsibility for dealing with need. You know, needs have to be dealt with as a matter of administrative organization, of specialization, of legal protection, of legal limitations, of financial organization. Now, all of that's true. Every single thing there is true. And plan deals with a great deal of that. But that's only the utilitarian stuff. That's not the stuff itself. That's not the heart of the problem or the heart of the opportunity. It's about the responsibilities of the state. But the responsibilities of the state should not allow us to start thinking that everything that we have to do together comes out of a kind of post-industrial experience of utilitarianism and linearity. Because if we do that, we eliminate the whole idea of citizenship as belonging, and we start to accept that ridiculous language in which citizens are referred to by politicians and administrators as clients. We're not clients of government. We own the government. It's our government. There isn't a single thing of government which we don't own. How could we be clients? And we're not buying shoes. We're talking about the rights of citizens within their own society. We're not stakeholders, we're citizens. But if we allow ourselves to go down that narrow road of responsibility, of post-industrial, of linear, we end up in that idea that we're clients and when stakeholders will decide what's gonna happen. And we lose that idea of the citizen, which is to say the idea of friendship. And here there's a delicate point, I mean, really quite a delicate point. Love is central to all of our lives. We all know that love is one of the most difficult things for humans to accomplish. If it were so easy, there wouldn't be the divorce rates there are, right? But love is a very personal thing, and it can really only be applied to people you know. So you can't actually organize a civilization on the basis of love, because you can't love people you don't know unless it's a kind of romantic, theoretical, abstract idea. On the other hand, the idea of friendship, the idea of belonging, the idea of inclusion, all of these things can be true at a much larger level. And if that idea of belonging, that idea of friendship, that obligation of 
imagining the other is not at the center of everything we do, then our society can't function. This society would fall apart overnight if you withdraw volunteerism from the way it works. But what is volunteerism? It's nothing more than active citizenship. That's what it is. I mean, it's given a word today because everything has to be specialized. So suddenly there are the volunteers in the volunteer sector. I'm terribly sorry, that's not true. What there are are active citizens as opposed to inactive citizens. And every citizen has the obligation to be active. And when we say Canada has the highest levels of volunteerism in the Western world, it's true. But it's still way, way too low. But of course, I can't criticize you for that because this is a room filled with people who are engaged very much in their society. There are, I think, out there, outside of this organization and this group, hundreds of examples of what uh, friendship, belonging, community can look like. I was very struck a couple of years ago in northern Quebec, the Inuit part of northern Quebec, Nunavik, not Nunavut, Nunavik. Uh, each town has a community freezer. And just think about this in terms of, in comparison to our, you know, food banks, which you know there's, what is it, 800,000 Canadians going to food banks, getting worse and worse, a terrible failure of rational, linear, utilitarian, administrative approaches, right? And you go into these communities and there's a freezer. Usually a couple of big guys run it, do the butchering. And so when the caribou are running, they go out and they get a whole bunch and they're properly butchered and they're put there in nice, you know, properly organized and there's a section for the elders. And when the char run, they get a lot of char and put them in there. And when somebody goes out hunting and they get a caribou and they only need half for their family, they go over and they throw the other half into the community freezer and it's properly butchered and so on. And then the next week, the same person realizes they don't have anything at home and they wander over to the freezer and pick up something and take it home. You know, I could do it. Any one of you could do it. And there's nobody there when you give the meat or the fish to say, thank you, John. That was so generous. Here's a tax receipt. You know, none of that stuff, right? No bureaucracy, no, no paper. And when I go and take the meat, nobody says, God, John's been here twice this week. Got to watch him, you know, not really engaging properly. And the funny thing is that using Southern theory, there'd be a run on these community freezers, right? Because you just go and get the stuff. There isn't a run on it because they're citizens. They go and take when they need to and they give when they can. It's an idea of belonging. And it's not unlike the ideas of uh, Richard Atlio, the father of the new national chief, uh, in his book, Tsawak. I don't know if any of you have read it, a wonderful book where he talks Tsawak, which is uh, how it, uh, how the idea of all is one, a form of belonging which is nonlinear. Witteskewen, the Cree idea of living together in the land, all together in the place. So there are many, many ideas that are proper to this society which fit with what plan has been doing and is doing. And I think that I say all of that knowing that this is a society filled with people in isolation, lonely people, not simply people who are thought to have disabilities, but many, many people in the society, a large and growing percentage of people in the society who feel loneliness and isolation and desire deeply to belong. They want to belong because belonging is at the core of our civilization. People 
with disabilities feel this. Old people feel isolated. People with mental health problems feel it. Foster children. There's a long list of people. People who look as if they're doing just fine, but actually spend their days in offices and cubicles looking at computer screens. Feel loneliness and isolation. In a sense, the members of PLAN and others like them stand for the possibilities and the needs of this society to find solutions to this isolation and loneliness. All of us suffer unconsciously or consciously from loneliness and isolation. The circle of friendship of the sort we're talking about is necessary for all of us. That is the humanist proposition of a society like ours. There's a great Aboriginal idea which goes right across the country in various forms. In every treaty it appears or it's understood to appear. The whole of Canada was built on this idea, which is why it's not taught and basically not heard of anywhere, because it's so important, it's very Canadian, to not talk about the things that matter. And it's the phrase, the great bowl and spoon, the great, uh, the common, to eat from the common bowl. We will all eat from the common bowl. Every treaty was based on that idea of sharing from the common bowl. Our whole society was built up from that idea of essentially a circle of friendship in which we would all belong and we would all share. So I think that if you look at those who have apparent disabilities, and you think to yourself seriously, and I don't need to say this to you, but I mean, I'm talking to the society, um, you know immediately that these people are not asking for charity. They're not asking for help. They're asking for us to support their right to be full citizens. They're asking for us to join them in an alliance to help them to their rights as citizens, their right to belong. And to the extent that we take up their cause, we are first embracing a friend, but secondly, and most important, we're embracing a friend who will be able to help us, we ourselves, find a way to belong in this society. Thank you very much.